Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and I'm super excited to be joined by the voice of my hockey fandom as a youth in Dean Brown, who is the play-by-play radio voice of the Ottawa Senators. Welcome to the show, Dean. Uh, my eight-year-old self would be very starstruck, and even my 25-year-old self is. So I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, coming on. No, Alex, thanks for uh, thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for listening and watching all these years. Makes an old guy feel good when young guys remember you. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, no, for sure. Been a huge Sens fan. And obviously you've been the voice. I remember you at a channel and, and everything. So uh, you with the, um, yeah, so I really appreciate you doing this. And I just want to ask you about your career. I know you have a really cool story of how you got in. It wasn't, you know, the, the normal route. Tell us about how you became the voice of the Rough Riders here in Ottawa at the age of, I think you were 23. And, and just tell us a little bit about your career journey. Uh, well, I, I got into the business by accident. I was just coming out of high school and I was playing football at the time. And uh, I got interviewed by a guy uh, after a game that I had played in growing up in Winnipeg. And um, he said, uh, you know, hey, if you ever want to get in the business, uh, you know, you can speak well, you know. And I said, well, OK, thanks very much. Whatever. Um, and anyway, so um, I gave him a call. I didn't have a summer job. I planned to go into university and um thought, well, you know, I'll just give them a call and see it. I went in. They gave me some scripts to read. I went in, read them. They offered me a job. I was doing news. I started doing overnight news. And I was only there for three months, two and a half, three months. And then I got offered a job in London. Mm-hmm. Guys just offered me a job in London to do news again. So I moved to London and I started doing news there. And after a while, the sports director left to go on a sabbatical and I was the guy who knew the most about sports. And so they asked me if I'd fill in. I said, yeah, sure, whatever. And uh, then I became the sports director there because the guy never came back. So they made me the sports director. And then I got offered a job uh, actually in Ottawa and Windsor at the same time. Yeah. Uh, the, the big eight in uh, in Windsor at that time had the USFL rights uh, to, the ga- to the team in Detroit. And Ottawa, of course, had the Ottawa Rough Riders. And both places wanted me to be the young guy who did some sports casts. Uh, did the pregame show, did the halftime show, did the postgame show. And um, I chose I chose Ottawa out of the two uh, because I had family here. I well, still have family here. Uh, and a guy that I worked with in London was working at CFRA in Ottawa. And so I stayed with him while I was in town and we reconnected and everything. So anyway, I, I chose the Ottawa job. I was very fortunate to have two choices, which turned out to be a great choice. Yeah. Uh, because a couple of months later, the USFL mm-hmm. folded and the station that I was going to work for fired everybody turned it into music of your life, which was all automated. So I would have been fired with everybody else. Uh, anyway, I, I came to Ottawa and uh, I started on CFRA um, doing sports casts and uh, doing uh, the pregame, halftime and postgame show on the Rough Rider broadcast. And after the first year, uh, Jeff Courier, who was the uh, color guy, left to go to Saskatchewan to be the play-by-play guy of the uh, Saskatchewan Rough Riders. So they moved me up to do color because I'd played football, not professionally, but I'd played football at a decent mm-hmm. level. And so they thought I could do color. And then the year after that, John Batten, the play-by-play guy, uh, left to go to Toronto to take the job doing the Argo. So they asked me if I wanted to be the play-by-play guy and the morning sports voice and the sports director. So I said, okay. And like literally, that's how fast it happened. And then I did the Rough Riders. Uh, it was the voice of the Rough Riders. Between, I didn't do play-by-play for 10 years, but I did the games for 10 years. The first mm-hmm. two, obviously, were not doing play-by-play, uh, but the last eight or thereabouts were doing the play-by-play. And then when the Sanders came to town and our radio station uh, won the play-by-play rights, 
uh, Gordon and I went down to Montreal, got a tape together and uh, submitted the tape and got the job doing the play-by-play. So that's when I switched from doing um, the football to the hockey. And after doing a couple of years of radio, I got offered the opportunity to do still do radio, but do some TV on an A channel. Mm-hmm. And then years after that, I got the chance to do the game still some on radio and some on Rogers uh, with the regional package. And then I got offered a chance to do some radio, some Rogers and do hockey night in Canada. Wow. So I did that. And then when the rights changed, I could have stayed at Rogers and hockey night, but the travel would have been terrible. So I had the opportunity just to go back to doing only radio. And that's what I chose. And that's where I am now. Huh. And and with that, obviously you've done play-by-play for so long. Like what, what do you think are some of the keys to being a good play-by-play announcer and, and, and just tell us like how you maybe prepare for games and, and, and uh, just how you do it. Well, you know what, Alex, being a, being a play-by-play guy is not much different than being anybody on the air. The, uh, the, the thing, the thing that gets you to whatever you're going to be and however good you're going to be is dependent on how quickly you can be yourself on the air. Mm. And you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, in golf when people say, well, just keep your head down and, and keep your elbow back. It sounds really good when you say it. all you have to do is do this, but everybody knows it's far harder to hit a ball than just that. It's the same in radio. It's the same in broadcasting. The hardest thing is to let yourself on the air, just be who you are. I think all of us, when we come into this business, have this idea about what you're supposed to sound like, what you're supposed to look like. And I think a lot of times people are trying to sound or or be the way, you know, whoever their idol is or whoever, you know, their mentor is, they try to look like them and sound like them. And to be honest with you, the, the sooner you can find your way to being your actual self on the air is when you get better at this business. And that doesn't mean you'll be good because in this business, there is an it factor. Some people just have it. Either you have it or you don't. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter how long you go to school. It doesn't matter how many degrees you get. It doesn't matter how much you read. It just, you know, some people have it and some don't. It's a performance-based business. So um, I was very, I've always been very lucky in that um, I've pretty much always been me okay. on the air. So like the guy you hear on the air mm-hmm. is is me, you know, like, so when, when people say, you know, like you sound like an idiot on the air, I go, well, that's great. Cause I'm an idiot in real life. You know, <laughs> when people hear Gordon and I fooling around, we, we do that all the time when we're not on the air. You know, I, I love it when people come up to me and they say, you know, do, do your radio voice. And I told them, I don't, I don't have a, a separate made up voice for, like, I don't have that. I just, who I am and yeah. what I sound like is who I am and what I sound like. So I've been, I've been very fortunate that I was to was able to, you know, be myself on the air. And and maybe more important as far as being lucky is that I always worked for people who allowed me to be mm. myself on the air. Um, because, uh, you know, that that is in no small part, a big part of what can really make you good on the air is having the, you know, the permission to be yourself. Because if you're, if you're yourself on the air, in the case of just me, everybody's different, but in the case of just me, um, I goof around a lot. I, I think I think it's in in play by play or any kind of broadcasting. Um, you know, people want to be entertained. They want to have fun. They want it to be fun and they want entertainment. So if you're having fun, they're going to have fun. So I don't apologize for how much fun yeah, I and Gordon and I and we how much fun we have on the air. You know, if you look at if you want to go into the science of it, you know, if you look at all the focus groups, if you look at all the studies in our business, and there's lots of research done. Mm-hmm. 
you know, in any format, a talk format, a music format, a play-by-play format, when, when they interview and really diagnose and monitor the people who consume that, either listeners or viewers, whether it's radio or television, and ask them what's the most important thing about the broadcast, um, you know, sometimes we in broadcasting think it's, you know, how good and professional we sound or how sharp our makeup looks or, you know, the really keen, clever information we have. By and large, the first thing that people want to want to hear is fun. It's got to be fun for them to listen mm-hmm. and it's got to be entertaining and they want to be informed and all those things. But fun is almost always the number one thing. So whatever you do, however you are, if you're a super serious guy and the stats is what really drives you and that kind of stuff, that's OK. That's who you are. Um, but do it in a fun way. And it's OK to laugh. It's OK to laugh at yourself. It's mm-hmm. OK to laugh with others. It's OK to have a good time. You know, in, in our case, in, in sports broadcasting, by and large, people enjoy sports because it's fun and it's entertainment for them. So we should not be treating the broadcast like it's open heart surgery, you know, like no one's <laughs> yeah. living or dying based on yeah. how Dean and Gore do the games. So I, I think that's probably the biggest thing, Alex, is in our business, the the ones who can get to being them, their, their true selves on the air the quickest are the ones who generally ascend the quickest if there's opportunity. And that a lot of times has to do with luck and being in the right place at the right time. You know, that that's the other part of it. It's a very it's a business that's still, you know, very centered on happenstance. You have to have somebody with the the ability to hire you to hear you, see you, believe in you right away and give you a chance. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's lots of people who have had exceptional careers in Yorkton, Saskatchewan. You know, just because somebody in a bigger market didn't hear them and see them didn't mean they weren't really good at it. Yeah. So there's a bit of there's a bit of luck involved, but if I had to say any one thing uh, it would be be yourself. And then along with that, it goes the old adage that my dad always told me about any job. Be early and be ready. Yeah. You know, do your homework, be ready to broadcast. When we go on the air, we're never winging it. I know it sounds like we are, but mm-hmm. we're never winging it. We both, Gordon and I, are real sticklers about pre- uh, preparation and homework. Do the work. You know, the, the guys who are the best in broadcasting, period, never mind play-by-play, but any kind, are the ones that are prepared, the ones who have done their research, the ones who have done their notes and their homework. That's who the best ones are because they're never caught. You're never having to dance and ad lib if you don't want to. And so I always tell young guys, whether I tell my son this, whether and he's not in broadcasting, the, the greatest adage about work and being successful at whatever you do is the simplest one that my dad told me when I was 12, when I got my first job, be early and be ready. Yeah. And so for every game we do, we are both early and we are both ready. Hmm. Now we might still suck on the air, but it's not because we're not early or not because yeah, we're not ready. Yeah. And and with that, I know you you've talked about sometimes like you've been in the booth with with so many great people, but how how does that come about? And I know you said that a lot of the times your best maybe connection with people, obviously with Gord uh, here in Ottawa for for a long time, but that you were friends before working together. How important is it that to to, to be a friend with whoever's the color or play-by-play person that you share the booth with? And, and what do you think makes a good dynamic in the booth? Well, it, it's a good, it's a good thing to have, but it's just, it's, it's not very common. You know, I've been very lucky that, you know, in, in several cases and, and many not, you know, when I was working for hockey night in Canada, I was working with a lot of different guys, you know, yeah. um, but you get to know guys through the business. So, um, you know, there's been a couple of guys that I was friends with, uh, before we ever started broadcasting, Gord being first and foremost, we worked together on football before there ever was hockey here, you know, so we've known each other for a very long time. 
And, you know, I knew Greg Millen when I started doing games on Rogers. He had already been doing them for years uh, on the new RO or A channel. And so we had a relationship from being on the road and doing different broadcasts, but seeing each other all the time. And Gary Galley, when I started working with him, you know, he was a friend of mine before he ever got into broadcasting, yeah. really. And same with Denny Potvat. Denny Potvat and I were friends before he ever got the job, you know, in Ottawa. So I was I was really very lucky. And there was lots of guys that I ended up doing games with that I didn't really know very well. So you, you just try to be professional and you try to make it sound like you've been buddies for a long time by just being cordial because you want people to have that feeling like you're a yeah. team. But sometimes it's easier than other times. And not because guys are obstinate or anything. It's just because you might not know each other really well. Like when I did some hockey night games with Craig Simpson, we didn't really know each other at all. But so you just, you know, get along mm -hmm. and do the game and try to get to know each other. When I first started doing some games with uh, legendary Harry Neal, same thing. I knew Harry from sitting in the stands when he was doing hockey night games with Coley, but I didn't really, we weren't buddies or anything, you know, just yeah. knew each other. Well, we started doing some games together on hockey night and you get to know each other. And so, you know, same with other guys, Pat Flatley and Ron Tugnut. And I worked with Glenn Healy and, you know, uh, you know, Kelly Rudy, I did games with. So, you know, you end up working with a lot of guys and you obviously, I think, have the best chemistry with the guys, you know, because that's a relationship that's not based on the broadcast. It's based on you knowing each other. So you also have a better idea of how much fooling around you can do because yeah. your partner has to be able to get your sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And so that that comes across. That's e those parts are easier when you're working with somebody that you've known for a long time and somebody you're friends with, you know. Like I said, I found I found doing games with, you know, Greg Millen and obviously Gord and Gary Galley and Denny incredibly easy because I've known them for a long time. Um, yeah, yeah. No, and then with that, obviously now you're in, in, in radio. What's the biggest difference or how much of a difference is there between being on the air on, on TV compared to doing a radio play by play call for you, Dean? You know, for the for the play by play guy or for the for the color guy, it's very different. Okay. For me, for me. Um, I wear the same suits. Like I, like people always ask yeah. me, so is that one of your team? I, I wear the same suits on TV or radio. There's no second wardrobe. I wear suits I to every game that. and it's, there were, they weren't different suits for TV. Um, the biggest difference is when you wear makeup and when you don't, you know, as a play by play guy, uh, television in some ways is easier because there's things you don't have to call. I, I don't have to tell people, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, that, uh, you know, the Kachuk is uh, steaming down the left wing. They can see he's on the left wing. I don't have to tell yeah. them, you know. Um, I don't have to tell them that they're entering the zone. They they can see they're entering the zone. So you actually don't have to say as much. The the primary difference, other than that, like you're still calling the game, so the difference is not really that marked. The difference is the the ability as a play by play guy to be able to compartmentalize on television as opposed to radio. On radio, when you're doing the when I'm doing the play by play, I am the de facto producer. Yeah. What I choose to say, <laughs> when I choose to say it, how I choose to say it, that's mm, up to me. That's interesting. And, yeah. you know, when when there's a gap so Gord can jump in, I'm the one who creates that gap. I, I get when when the game is going on, I control all that. When you're on television, while you're talking, this is a, a, an interesting exercise for young broadcasters. Mm. Try and talk and do the play by play while someone's talking to you in your ear, telling you what's coming next, where you're throwing to next, yeah. what the break is going to be. If there's going to be a highlight coming up to the break, what that highlight's going to be. And you're doing that while you're actually still calling the game. So you have to do that kind of mental gymnastics where you're doing one thing 
it's like it's like playing two different songs on a guitar at the same time. You yeah. know, you see that some guitarists they can play the top and the bottom two different songs at the same time. Well, in television, the play-by-play guy, if he's really good at it, if you watch, you know, the really good guys at it, you can't tell. But in every case, doesn't mm-hmm. matter how high up the food chain you go, in every case, that is a skill that they all have because producers and directors, but mostly the producer has to tell you where the show is going. And you're the guy who has to explain where the show is going. We're heading off to break. Here's that uh, shot of Tim Stutzla high and outside back in a moment. Well, I don't just magically know that that's the video they're going to show me. They have told me in my ear, but Mm. they told me in advance. So I'm still doing the play by play while while they're they're telling me that stuff. So you have to be able to run your mind on two tracks at the same time. That's the biggest difference between doing it on radio and television, but the play-by-play itself, there are subtle differences uh, that you really, you you can and should omit things on television because you don't want to insult the viewer by telling them things they can clearly see themselves, yeah. you know? So uh, those are those are probably the two biggest differences between the two, but it's a it's a very, very different thing for uh, the color guy, you know, on, on radio, uh, it's, a, it's a far tougher job because it's theater of the mind. You have no pictures on yeah. television, um, you know, you get to converse with the director uh, while the play is going on to pick which replays you want, or sometimes they're just going to show you something. And again, they'll tell the color guy in his ear what's coming his way. So he knows in advance. Um, but it's it's a very diff- different job for the huh. color guy as opposed to the radio guy in going between television and radio. And and with that, obviously, I'd be remiss. And a lot of people asked about just, I know with uh, your famous kind of sayings of scramble, I'm trying to do it as best as I can to imitate you and fumble. Fantastic. I know it came from fumble from, from football and my heavens. And you said that it's a delay tactic for you yep. in, in, in a sort of way, maybe just tell us why that's important in a broadcast to have something like scramble or, or my heavens to kind of delay the uh, kind of for the, the listener or the viewer. Well, in, in football with a fumble, you, you know, you don't want to you don't want to be hard on it as far as time goes and be in real time because when it happens and oftentimes after it happens you don't know right away or even for a little while who has the ball so you don't want to get be in the middle of something that's exciting and pitch up and get everybody on the edge of their seats and then just go quiet while we wait to find out who's got the ball or in hockey case where's the puck is it under the goalie is it outside did it go in the net did he get pushed in the net so by doing that by using that technique, or the one I use with either fumble in football or scramble in, in hockey, it gives you a few seconds to be able to determine what's going on. And now mm-hmm. it doesn't always work that you will know, but is it a scramble and the puck gets deflected to the corner? Is it a scramble it goes in? Is it a scramble and it's getting waved off? Is it a scramble and it's under the goalie? It gives you time to be able to determine what is happening if you can, while not deflating the excitement balloon that you built up mm. with a really exciting goal mouth play. You know, like you don't want fans in the call who can't see it if you're on radio to get, you know, coming in and it's in the goal scramble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's under the goal. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. can't leave them hanging like that. So, you know, scramble or in football fumble is kind of a bridge in the excitement without just taking all the air out of the balloon and then, you know, so it's a, it's a way to try and hold on to the excitement of the moment, um, and you know I it's one that's something that I kind of stole from U.S. college football because Keith, yeah. Keith Jackson used to do the same kind of thing, mm-hmm. and I I did that in football all the time for the same kind of reason, and it just carried into hockey. It's a great tool to 
you know, and to be honest with you, you don't even realize really you're doing it. Okay. It's not a, like the things that I say, like none of them are written out. Like it's, yeah. I, you know, like I just, I just say them, you know, like it's, it's not one of those things where anything is pre-planned. We really don't have any scripts other than the format that tells us what we're supposed to say before we go to commercial. And the reason that always has to be the same is, is the words are exactly the same because there's other stations in our network. So a producer in Pembroke knows when to hit the button for a commercial based mm -hmm. on what I say. So, you know, those things are written out because they have to be consistent for all the other stations to know it's time to take commercials. But as far as in the game goes, there's, there's no scripts. It's three hours of high wire act with no net. There's no, we have no scripts. We have no, you know, say this funny saying that. No, no, I just make them up as I go. It, it either comes to you or it doesn't, you know? And, and with that, obviously, I know you said before that you don't really remember a lot of your calls and, and so, but what are maybe your most memorable moments of your career? It doesn't have to be a call, but what would you say the most memorable moment would be for you either call or, or otherwise? Well, I think probably the play that got Ottawa to the Stanley Cup final. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think, uh, you know, that, that Alfie goal in Buffalo, the, the irony about that one was that, uh, and, I, and I've heard it back and it doesn't sound like it, but the reality is Gordon and I, where we were in Buffalo for that goal, where we were calling the game from, where because in the, in the playoffs, the NHL decides where your broadcast location is. Mm -hmm. So they have network TV here. And so, so anyway, truth be told, we were behind a curtain down at the other end of the ice, basically on the goal line. Oh my God. So seeing the other end of the ice for that goal, I never saw the goal go in live. I never wow. saw. I, so I was reacting to their on ice reactions, but wow. you know, you, I can obviously see them going up the ice and I, and I knew who shot it, but I never, I never actually ever saw the puck go in <laughs> the net from where we were. It was impossible to see. <clears throat> so sometimes, you know, I remember it because it was, you know, such an important goal for this franchise, but you know, it's sometimes, I know, I know, and, and I'm very proud of the fact that people think of me only as the voice of the Ottawa Senators. But, you know, one of the other calls that I always remember um, is Steven Stamkos yeah. scoring his 60th goal, you know, when he when he got to 60 in one year. Um, and the reason is the my call is the only call on television of yeah. that call because that was a game back when every team didn't broadcast every team. So Tampa didn't Crazy. broadcast that game. It was a game in Winnipeg. Uh, and I was on hockey night in Canada and Stamkos hit 60. And so that replay gets played all the time because it's the only one, like people can't, well, let's use the other. Well, there isn't another one, you know, like it's just that <laughs> stupid Brown guy. from yeah. So yeah, you remember that because that was a, you know, a big milestone for one of the game's stars. So, you know, you remember, you remember things, you know, like that, but for plays, you know, individual plays, you know, after 30, one years or whatever, a lot of them just kind of meld together. And mm -hmm. in, in my mind, the way my mind works is like, I'm a very immediate person, what I'm doing now, but after I'm done with it, I'm done with it. You know, sometimes, you know, the, the newspaper guys are in a real tough spot. Deadlines nowadays are so tight that they just don't have time. So there's, there's times when you'll get a, a, a newspaper guy run up to our booth during a commercial break and say on the last goal, Who's the guy who banked it off the boards ahead to the blue line? And then what should we call a pick to the pass it ahead? And they go, uh, I really don't know. And they go, well, you just called it like two minutes ago. I said, yeah, but it's gone. Like, you know, <laughs> I've called it. Yeah. It's gone. And, yeah. you know, like, I don't know why my brain works that way, but 
You know, I wish I wish I had recall like Liam McGuire does. Like yeah. I, Liam is to me, Liam is such an amazing guy. He's got such an amazing talent in a whole bunch of other ways. But one of the big things is, you know, his identic memory. And I, I just wish that I had a sliver of that because I do not. Like I'm terrible at trivia. Like I can't remember. I just, you know, but especially with plays, plays that are emotional plays that are important to people as fans. Sometimes I feel, I feel really bad that I disappoint them when they ask me about what it was like to call it. And I say, I don't really remember how I felt calling that. Cause I'm trying to, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't really call the games as a fan. I it's, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like being a surgeon. You, you can't, you know, it's one, there's a reason why they don't let surgeons operate on their family members. They want to, they want the emotion extracted from yeah. them. And it's kind of the same way, you know, my, my father was a pilot and his brain worked the same way as mine. It's what's the task, do the task, then move to the next task. And it's like a series of boxes. But once you, once you're done with this box and you move to the next one, what that last box was no longer matters. It's this box. And so I've always been able to not call the games as a fan because otherwise you get too emotional and then you're not good at your Mm -hmm. job. Number one. And number two, um, my recall for things is poor (laughs) because the way my mind works is if I'm in this box working right now, that's where everything's going. And when I move to the next box, that box is of no use to me now. My mind is, you know, and so for good or for bad, that's kind of how my brain has always worked. What's one thing of advice that you'd give to young broadcasters and play-by-play kind of announcers who are aspiring to get into the field? Like what's one kind of thing that you'd uh, tell them to, to, like a piece of uh, advice? Be on the air. It's very hard to do now. It's very hard to find places to do games, have people let you do games. Um, but if you want to get a job that pays, it's almost impossible to get it unless you've done a whole bunch of them that don't pay. So just find places, just find opportunities to call games. Just listen to people who call them so you can get kind of some basic tips on cadence and on, you know, how to how to be, how to, you know, the, the technical art of calling the game. But then the most important thing is to do them. Because you can't get an audition tape to get a job until you do games. And yeah. the only way to get good at this is to do it over and over and over and over again. You know, when I'm when I'm speaking at schools, lots of times I'll bring, you know, one of my prep sheets and I'll I'll show them and I'll I'll say to them, you know, like if you're if you're wondering about my job, it's a little bit like being a dairy farmer. You know, like uh, I've milked cows. I grew up in the country, you know, mm. and I tell people it is not complicated work to milk cows. The hard part about being a dairy farmer is having the diligence and the work ethic to do it every day. There's no days mm. off. It's every day. It's kind of the same in our business. Like I, I like I said, I bring mm. one of my prep sheets and I tell the kids in high school, I say the amount of prep work we do for each game is about equivalent to a midterm exam for you. Not a yeah. final exam, but a midterm exam. So the question is, not can you study for a midterm exam? The st- the question is, can you do it over and over and over and mm. over again and have the diligence to work that hard preparing every time over and over again? And that's really the key. It's not that the job is super complicated and it's not that you need a super big brain to do it because Lord knows I'm doing it and my brain is not super big. Um, but can you do the work? That That's the whole thing. Can you do the work? And a lot of times people get tired of doing it because if you don't enjoy if you don't enjoy the research this is a hard job to be good at because you're not good without research and homework and if you find that challenging i enjoy doing it i enjoy the work so it's, i don't need to be motivated to sit down and do it 
I do it for hours before every game, hours. Yeah. And if that starts to get to you, then you're just not going to be good at this. It's just, it's just that simple. Mm. And then after you have all those basic tenets, you know, you have some experience, you've done a lot of games, you have a work ethic to be able to do the homework and know how to get the numbers and the information that you need and want, then you have to have the it factor. And if you have the it factor, then, you know, you, you can go someplace, but that's kind of the last thing in the, on the list. Do you have the it factor? Because is even that, if you have it, if you don't, if you aren't willing to work, you just won't be good at this. You know? Is that a voice? Like what, what is it just a kind of a presence on air? What, what, what would you say the it factor is? For it's you? all, it's all, it's all those things. It's, you know, you don't have to have a big booming voice, you know, Chris Cuthbert might be the best play by play guy in hockey on the planet. And yeah. Chris does not have a big booming voice. No. It's, can you communicate? Can you be yourself on the air? And can you communicate? And do uh, can you do you have the resolve to do the work? And the it factor is really kind of intrinsically understanding that you're entertaining. You know, people who call games like it's a session with your accountant. Technically, they can be correct on who's got the puck, who shoots it, and who scores. But, but they can bore you to tears. Yeah. You know, being technically strong is a good attribute to have, but by and large, that's going to bore people. And if it bores your boss, he's not your boss anymore because you're unemployed. So it's, you know, it's like in, it's, it's like for an actor, what, you know, somebody who takes acting classes for 10 years and they can't get a job acting, is it because they didn't get enough acting school time? No, it's because there's just something that, you know, a good actor has. It's the same with a play-by-play person or a morning show host on radio or, yeah. or a weather person on TV. You know, there's just some intrinsic thing they have that, when the light goes on, it's time to broadcast. They have it. And it is not one thing or, you know, one list of things. But the funny thing is, when you hear somebody, you know, as a, as a sports fan like you, when you hear somebody on the air, you might not be able to explain exactly why, but you know you want to keep listening. Yeah. Or you know excited. you want to keep watching. And you might not be able to make a list of why that is, but you just know you do. And it's because they have it. And I wish I could give a better explanation but more importantly, I wish that I could bottle it and sell it because I'd be a gazillionaire. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. there definitely is the it factor. And, you know, there's not many guys that go far in our business that don't have that. Um, I want to transition as best I can to, to the sense. But before that, I, I have a fun question. I always ask uh, hockey people that come on the show. And, and that's if, if you could act as uh in this case, as Gary Bettman for one day as commissioner of the NHL, and you could change whatever rule you'd want, what rule would that be, Dean? Uh, just one rule, or the one guys rule. who call the rules. Uh, I mean that that could be part of it. You can you can say you have a big change for the officiating if if that's what I, I'm not a, I'm not opposed to that. But yeah, sure, you can go down that uh, rabbit hole if you want. Well, it's it's uh, it's too long, it's too involved, and there's no good, easy one answer. But uh, I, I've I've always thought that uh, officiating and supplementary mm-hmm. discipline in our league um, needs to get better, and I think technology is one of the ways to do that. Um, I think technology could really help the officials, but you know that's another that's another um, topic for another day because that's about a, an entire show by itself. I I, I think for me, um, one of the things that I find frustrating. Um, is the instigator rule. Mm. My, my yeah. thing my thing with the instigator rule would be if I was the commissioner, I would speak to the director of officiating, Stephen Walcom, and I would say, either call it or we'll take it out. Yep. But this, 
you know, there, there might not there might not be another rule that is ignored more often by officials. You know, if how many times have we seen somebody hit somebody with a clean hit and then somebody comes over and starts a fight with them and they go, both get, you know, five minutes for fighting? Or well, rough. there was no fight until the guy came over to start it. So where's the instigation rule? Like it's <laughs> supposed to be an advantage to the other team if your guy picks a fight with that guy. And just too often, it's the officials deciding, well, you know, we want to keep things even. Well, you can't stop, you know, like you can't choose to ignore things that are in the rule book. Well, we all know they do and they can. So for me, not that it, you know, there's so little fighting now in the NHL that I'm not sure if it would change the fate of the games. I just think it's one of the, the, one of the rules that most obviously points out the fact that the rules are unbelievably arbitrary. And so either call it or take it out of the rule book but stop this charade because it is a charade like you you know yeah. it's like it's like goalie interference you know i said once to one of the guys from the league who called me to talk about this and i said you know and he, he, we didn't well he didn't call to talk about it. he called to yeah. called to give me crap because yeah. um they don't the, the league doesn't like it when you say these yeah, negative things especially about supplementary discipline and officiating and if I and if I were employed by the team, they could call the team and complain. But um, I don't work for the team, so they call me. And you know, their their point is that you know people listen to you, and if you you know cast aspersions, I said, listen, you shouldn't be worried about stupid Dean Brown in Ottawa or any broadcaster or anybody in the media. You you should be concerned about the fact that there are no players, no coaches, and no managers in the NHL that can tell you what goaltender interference is. Yeah. So I said, your biggest problem is that your direct constituency has no clue what is or isn't goaltender interference. So before you start worrying about what guys like me say or other people in the media or what writers write about the Department of Player Safety or how the review process works, when you have coaches, and just ask yourself this, coaches, players, and managers around the league when have you ever heard any of them say, when asked the question, any of them say anything except, well, those guys have a hard job? <laughs> That's not an endorsement no. of anything. No. That's simply telling you there's nothing I have to say that's positive. So I'm just going to make this general comment about how difficult that job is. So for, for me, kind of the, uh, the poster child of that is how the instigator rule is half the time completely ignored and half the time called, but you never know which. And so if I were the commissioner for a day, that would be the one rule I'd say, either call it all the time or just take it out. But one way solve this because it makes us as a league look stupid. And right. I love the league. I love the NHL. I love the game. And I hate the things that make us look stupid as a sport. So that's one of them. No, I, I think the the calling it even and then the instigator is a great example of the league clearly not just calling the right, making the right calls. And at the same time, making it even, which is not really the point of penalties. If no. it was even, it'd be three on three or five on five on the time. It wouldn't be, you know, there would well, be power plays. So I'll tell you a story about way back, way back when, when, when Florida went to the Stanley cup final, Roger Nielsen was coaching. In and I talked to him about this when, when he was here and, and Brian Murray as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when Florida came in they knew that their skill level wasn't super high. So basically the way they looked at it as a team, is if we if we say in a game commit 
60, 70, 80 fouls. They'll, they'll never call 60, 70, or 80 penalties. So yeah. if we really work on our penalty kill and we accept the fact that we will take more penalties than anybody else, but if we get 10 penalties a game and we kill off nine of them because our penalty kill is really good, but that levels the playing field and their better players can't dominate us, is that really a bad thing? So yeah. when people talk about how dirty Florida was, yeah, they were. It was by design. It, mm -hmm. That was their game plan. And the league basically allowed it. If yeah. you allow a team that commits 100 fouls, but you only call them for 10 because it would slow the game down to call all the penalties, they have, in effect, won. Yeah. And that that game plan is one that they used, and it was super effective. And you know what? As competitive people, I don't blame any of them for doing that. Well, but nothing not changes, though, and, until you start calling them for yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. You, know, you might be able to kill off 10 penalties, but can you kill off 20? Yeah. You know, that that's when things would have changed. But, you know... That's that's one of the strategies that had been employed back then. No, no, I, I definitely agree with that. And, and you see that in other sports where if they just let bygones be bygones, then why will any team and player stop doing that to get a competitive advantage? But um, I want to go from from as best as I can from the NHL and the rule book to the Senators. And just for you, Dean, being here in Ottawa for so long and, and covering the Sens for so long, what are your first impressions of Ann Lauer as the new ownership and, and what does Ottawa need in a new owner with, with Michael Anlauer, who obviously has preliminarily bought the team and, and should have uh, full ownership sometime in the next couple months. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know him. I've never, I've never met him. Um, so I only go by uh, people that I know who know him or work for him uh, or have worked for him in the past. And from what I understand, he's a straight shooter. He's very passionate about this. He's going to be a hands-on um, involved owner. He, he's not a guy that's going to sit in an office somewhere in Toronto and no. pick up the phone and go, how's it going? Like you're, I, I think we're probably going to see him around a lot and he's going to be involved. And I think that's a good thing. And I think he's going to make a lot of decisions um, not based on what he's heard, but what he sees himself. You know, I think he's the kind of guy from what I understand is uh, when he gets, you know, on the ground full time and gets into it, He's going to make his own decisions, uh, and I think that's probably a good thing. If you come in with an unvarnished eye and you're not in any way swayed by the past or the present or what you think the future is going to be for somebody or something or some department or some job or, you know, whatever, um, I think it's a fresh start. I think it's a fresh start for some people, and I think that, you know, I, I, I don't know who and I don't know what areas because those are going to be things that he's going to center in on, but it is – a very regular and normal occurrence that when you have new ownership, there's going to be changes in many departments. A new owner is going to bring in his thoughts and values and, you know, things that have been successful in other businesses that he's owned and he'll implement them with, with this business. So, you know, you will, you will see change um, in many different departments. I'm sure. I don't know what they're going to be, but you know, I I'm told that, uh, you know, by people who work for him, that one of the great things about him is that there's no BS. He wants to know what you need to do your job, and then he goes out and gets it. And if if it's not something you need, but just frivolous, he's not going to throw away money and do that. But if you say, boss, I need this to get this done, he'll just go, got it, done, finished. And apparently he is very responsive to that kind of stuff. He wants the guys digging the ditch for him to have exactly the kind of shovels they need to dig. And mm -hmm. uh, sometimes with some owners and a lot of businesses, that's a harder process to get done. From what I understand, though, with him, uh, he cuts out a lot of the, the middle garble in the middle, and he just gets in and gets it done himself. And 
I'll get the I'll get the shovels for you. You know, he doesn't he doesn't worry about a whole bunch of stuff in the middle. Let's just get people what they need to do their job and let's get doing the job. So I think for some people that's going to be uh, refreshing. And I think for some other people who are in the who have been people who are in the middle who who get in the who yeah. are the garble, they might find that uh, you know their jobs their roles might change a little bit. But I, th- I think overall um, it's it's exciting. I know there's a lot of unknown and. You know, a lot of people I'm sure over there are nervous because there is change that comes with new ownership. And I understand that. But but overall, I think it's it's a super fresh start. There's going to be a new building on the way in one way, shape or form, either making this one new again or building a new one or, you know, whatever the plan is going to be. And I think it comes at exactly the time when, you know, I really think this team is ready to pop. I think this yeah. team is is ready, is ready to go to that next level. I, I think they're a playoff team. And I think if they get to the playoffs with the style of hockey that is playoff hockey, I think they, I think in the very near future, they could be a very tough team to beat in the playoffs because of the style of play that they're going to play with and the kinds of players they have. Well, what do you make of the whole Debrinket experience in Ottawa and the trade? And just what do you make of it all? I don't know. I, you know, I'm, I'm like everybody else. I was never in any of the meetings. You know, Mm -hmm. they don't, uh, they don't call me in for their negotiating (laughs) sessions, but That'd be you know, great. Yeah, it would be great. Um, <laughs> players make decisions for a whole bunch of reasons all the time. You know, why did Chris Pronger leave Edmonton? His wife didn't like living there. It was, it was literally that simple. You know, we may find out down the road, or it may just be as simple as he and his wife are both from Detroit. And while they may have enjoyed the Ottawa experience for a year, they see themselves as living in Detroit, playing in Detroit. And, you know, if you can orchestrate that, you orchestrate that. And, and they did. You know, for me, Alex, you know, one of the things I've learned over the years is players come and players go. And they do that for many different reasons. There's too many people who think all the decision-making process, especially for a player, is about money and how much I can get here as opposed to how much I can get there. I can tell you there are a whole – money is definitely part of the decision-making process. But there are are a myriad of, of reasons why players want to stay. Or players want to go. I was reading a thing yesterday about, you know, Ryan O'Reilly, you know, talking about, he wouldn't be specific, but talking about deciding not to sign in Toronto and going to Nashville. Well, you know, I don't think anybody has to tell anybody else that Toronto is way closer to the Stanley Cup than Nashville is. But he made a decision and Nashville is where he wanted to be. And so, you know, people who think it's about having a chance to win or the money. Yeah, sometimes those are really important. But everyone's personal scale goes up and down. And I don't know the reason. I was around him every day, and he never looked unhappy, never looked like he was pouting, unless he had a bad game. But that's not yeah, a statement about normal, Ottawa. Yeah. That's a statement of being a professional athlete anywhere. But he was a happy guy. You could tell he got along with his teammates, and they got along with him, and the environment was great. But at the end of the day, I guess, it, I guess because I don't know for sure, but just what has been said is that he just didn't see himself long-term being anywhere except for Detroit. And so that's where he ends up. He's a happy guy. And in the case of the team, you know, there's no way you were ever going to win that trade. You had you were forced to trade. You had to trade him because if you don't and you end up losing him for nothing, that's that's just terrible. You can't have that happen. So I understood that Dorian was put into you know a back against the wall situation, and people say, well, you know, he didn't get enough back. Well, yeah, that's that's true. I don't think he did get enough back. But my point is, I don't know how you could. Yeah. You know, when you traded for him, you were trading for a 40 goal scorer. Because he was a 40-goal scorer. When Pierre's trading him, he's a 27-goal scorer. 
you know, and everybody knows he really only wants to be in one place. So if you trade for him, you're going to have the same problem that Pierre's having. He's not going to want to sign with you long-term either because he wants to be in Detroit. So no one wants to sign someone else's problem. So, you know, like, yeah, did they, did they get as much as they gave up to get him? No. But sometimes if you want to win, you got to roll the dice. You got to go out there in the marketplace and you got to hope that when he gets into this situation, he's going to like being here. He's going to see where this program is going, feel a part of it, and he'll want to stay. That's what you hope for. If he doesn't, you move him and try and get the best you can. And that's what they did. But I'm just not one of those people, to be honest with you, that mm-hmm. wants to spend a whole bunch of my time no, no. You know, constantly relitigating every trade going back 15 or 20 years. I just, I under, I understand there's people that like doing that and that's part of being a fan and that's fine. Just for me, mm-hmm. sitting there and trying to break down every trade going back to, you know, it's just, I, I, players come, players go, some deals are good, some are bad, some are just okay, some are good for both teams, some are good for one. That's, and it's constant. And that has never changed in this game. So I, I gotta be honest, I don't spend a ton of my time really super dissecting this stuff because there's going to be somebody else come in to take his ice time and play his role. And we'll find out if that guy's any good or not. And you know what I mean? Like there's always another guy. There's always other players, you know, there's always, you know, it's uh, that's just the way this business always is. How, how do you feel about the goaltending? I, I like, I, I know you don't want to, talk about all the transactions, but how confident do you feel in, in Forsberg and Corpusalo? Like, how do you feel about this team's goaltending going into next year after a pretty tumultuous uh, kind of round of goalies last year? Well, you know what, Alex, I'll be honest. I don't know because okay. I got it. And, and, yeah. you know, and, and, I'll, and I'll tell you straight up. I don't know because two years ago, I thought, I guess it was three years ago, four years ago, four years ago. Murray? I thought it was a great signing. I mean, a great signing to sign Matt Murray. Like I thought, this is a home run. You got a two-time Stanley Cup champion. Like this, you know, mm-hmm. and we all know where that went. So then you you pull another rabbit out of the hat. You sign an all-star, you know, getting tabled out of Minnesota. Perfect guy. And you, you've got Forsberg, who can be, you know, 1A, 1B, or, a, you know, a veteran A and a veteran B. Fantastic situation. I, I did not know that he was going to be injured as much as he was going to be injured. I, I thought that was a great deal. I really did. I thought that I thought they were on your on their way with that duo. Um, so now, I feel the same thing about Corpusalo. I, I very optimistic about what he's capable of, and I've always really liked, uh, you know, um, having a veteran backup guy. I, you know, I've just even the you know the double knee injury last year doesn't really worry me. Players get injured all the time. He and, works hard. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the the uh, the goaltender coming back after double knee surgery sounds bad, but the medical people that I know tell me, yeah, it, it's you know, it's like having any other injury. You know, you can come back from that. He's in good shape, works out hard. He'll be ready to go. So, I'm really optimistic about a Corpusalo combo. Uh, but again, I have to be wary of my own miscalculations because I couldn't have been more wrong on the last one or the one before. So yeah. I wouldn't want anybody saying, well, this, it should be good because Dean Brown thinks it's going to be good. Well, Dean, Dean Brown was an idiot on the last one and a bigger idiot on the <laughs> second last one. You know? yeah. So I, I, really, I really don't know. Um, but I, I'm hopeful for the team because I really think they're in a place with average goaltending. That does, guy doesn't have to be a Vesna candidate. I really think with average or a little above average goaltending on this team, I think this could be a very, very good team. But again, as we've seen in the last couple of years, the biggest thing is their ability to stay healthy because 
with Matt Murray, by and large, when he was healthy, he was pretty good. Talbot, when he was healthy, he was pretty good. So, you know, again, I think health is probably the biggest single thing. Uh, if, if you're a fan that you want for that position on this team, you want health. How excited are you to watch this uh, decor that finally feels like for five, six years, we've been asking who's the top four D like other than maybe Shabbat and then Zub and obviously Sanderson came in, but now with Chikrin as well to that mix, Brandstrom took seemed to take steps forward at the end of last year. How excited are you just to, to watch this decor? Just that seems to be the best in a long time for this team. Yeah, well, you know what, Alex, I'm not sure that I would say excited. Okay. You know, like to me, that's kind of a, to me, I just, I just try to look at these things analytically. The way, mm. I, if, if somebody had asked me to give my opinion about another team's defense core, what do I think? You know, it's just, in my mind, it's not excited like a fan or not excited or down. I, it's, it, to me, it's more, it's my job. Like, what do you think? So for me, what I think about it, I think now um, they have the capability of having a starting six, which is at the very least equal to what playoff teams have as a starting six. Mm-hmm. Now, I think fans are excited because what they have now appears to be so much better than what they've had. And that is a reason for a fan to be excited. But my point is, you know, with the additions that they've made and the experience that some of the young guys have now, you know, they're now at the point where they are, I think, going to be as good as what playoff teams are. And that's what you strive for. That's what that's what it should be. You know, I think they have a legitimate top four. And I think they have the ability to have a couple of people grow into roles in the five, six spots. So, you know, I think now it puts them in many ways on a level playing field with playoff teams. And that's good. But I don't think that uh, anybody should anticipate there's going to be three of the top six on this team in the Norris Trophy candidate list. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're going to have a really good defense core compared to what they've had, but it's now going to be at least equal with what playoff teams have. Mm-hmm. And so before before I let you go, I, we have some fan questions for you, Dean, and I just want to go sure. through a couple. Uh, and, and the first one is is just a little about this team seems to be very close, especially with Brady Kachuk and Tim Stutzler that all seem to be very good friends on and off the ice. How important do you think that is it for, for that as being part of a winning culture and, and, and in terms of going like not just being over club, we're, we're good friends, but actually impacting winning? Like how much do you think? is the importance of, of that or, or even affects uh, winning. Well, you know what? I, I go back to uh, what my friend, Denny Potman used to say, and you know, guy who's won four cups in the Norris trophy. No, something I kind of rely on. Yeah. I rely on his opinion for a lot of things at times. And I've had lots of guys, Gary Galley. I've talked about this a lot. You know, um, There have been teams who have won that aren't particularly close and that can happen, but it doesn't happen nearly as often because having that connection with your teammates is more likely to create a scenario where you're more determined to play for them, not for yourself. You know, everybody wants their own stats and everybody, you know, but if it is, if it for you inside is more important to create a situation for your friend to be able to succeed, that means one of your friends is trying to do the same thing for you. Mm -hmm. And teams that are really good for a really long time have that attribute more often than not. You know, Denny talks about their team in the Islanders and they were winning cups. Not every guy in the team was best friends with everybody else, but they all liked each other. Some were really close, but they all desperately wanted to win for each other. The Mm -hmm. Oilers were the same. You talk to the guys who were in Detroit during their dynasty. That was a common trend. 
And that doesn't guarantee you're going to win, but it, it very, very often is a key component of teams that do win. And I can tell you in my 31 years of doing Senators hockey, I've never been around a group on this team that is wow. as tight as this one is. And there have been some tight groups. But even during the Alfredson, you know, Spetsa, Heatley era, there were compartments. All the guys got along and they were all friends, but there were little cliques. You know, this group of guys always went to dinner together. This group of guys always – and it's not like they didn't like each other. They really did. But it was still – this this team has more all-team get-togethers than I've ever seen. Wow. And it's not because Brady is organizing and saying, hey, everybody's got to show up to this thing. It's like a couple of guys say we're going here and the other guys here and they go, well, we'll come too. And then all of a sudden you find out everybody's there. They all go. And yeah. it's just an organic thing. And it's like I said, I'm not exaggerating when in my 31 years of doing this, I haven't seen a group as tight as this group. And it is because there is a, there is a core, not a guy. Brady is the guy. Don't get me wrong. He is absolutely the captain of this team. Sometimes there's a captain who wears the C, but he's not really the leader. He's not no, really the center of the team. Yeah, I don't. Brady absolutely is. Yeah. There is no doubt about that. But Brady doesn't want it to be all him. And so everything they do, everything he does as the captain is in consultation. There's there's very few like one man meetings. It's all, well, I'm going to get the guys together. We're going to talk. And, you know, and he calls, you know, Giroux and Shabbat and Bath, you know, like there's a bunch of guys and then they tell everybody else. And so this team is really a team that is core driven. There's no one guy making choices. No one guy's will that kind of shrouds everything else. Even though Brady is definitely the dominant personality. The good thing is when the dominant personality requires the other teammates to be involved in making decisions, it not only involves them all, it makes them feel like they're important because mm -hmm. they are. And Brady and his brother, Matthew, learned that kind of team dynamic from their father. That is solely an attitude and a perspective um, that their father taught them from his years in the league. And you can see that. But there is no question who the centerpiece of this team is internally. But he does not dominate and control the team. He wants and requires consensus from his teammates which is our attributes that are not usually associated with a player as young as he is he is very very much in the leadership way one of the best leaders i've ever seen at that age it really is remarkable how much he gets like he just he gets it you know hmm. and it's and it's not all the hockey things you know like the 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 hockey team is very very good at connecting with the community with different charities and Lots of times when there's kids that are at the rink, you know, with their parents and you can just tell this is a make a wish family mm -hmm. and there haven't been any formal introductions yet. They haven't come over and said, you know, Hey Brady, this is Jeremy. Jeremy's, you know, there'll be a kid walking in the locker room and Brady will see him and Brady will walk over. It's still in his gear and get down on his knees. So their eyes said, hi, I'm Brady. What's your name? Like he's, he mm -hmm. just automatically knows to connect. And it's, you know, they do the tour of the locker room and meet the other guys, but Brady's the one who goes, come on back to the player's lounge. Come on, come on back and see. Let's yeah. go back and have some breakfast, you and me. You know, like, and wow. no one has to coach him. No one has to teach him how to do that. He he knows and he understands just intrinsically. And it's an amazing thing to watch the way he connects and way the way kids and people connect with him. And it's totally natural. And it it doesn't require any setup. There's always people there to make the introduction and do the phone. Hey, these are the this is the Jensen family, and this is Jen. <laughs> like those people. It's not like they're not there. 
But so often wow. Brady is doing it before they get down there to do it. And that's just the way he is. And then the other guys turn around and say, hey, Brady, hey, go, hi, my 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 name is, uh, you know, uh, Tim, what's your name? Yeah. And then, you know, and and that that creates what the environment is in the room. Wow. And that what that's what creates the expectation amongst the rest of the players. They're all very good at understanding, but now all of them are very good at seeing it before it happens and involving themselves before they're asked to. And that skill has come from watching how Brady does that and how that's just natural for him. And and I want to go to to Daniel Alfredson and, and uh, questions kind of when does Alfie get hired, but I'll, I'll change it. Like how important would it be for, for the senators and just for Ottawa itself to, to have Alfie back with the organization in a formal role? Yeah. Well, you know, he, he is and has been for, you know, a year and a half back with no formal role, but yeah. him just being around, um, going on the ice with the players, the guys who were injured and some of the young guys and him, him being around is incredibly important, not just so that young players can see the legacy that threads through the entire organization, where if you're a Senator today, you're a Senator tomorrow. So, you know, you're a part of this family, no matter when. And for that reason, it's not just important that Alfie's around. It's important that Chris Neal is around and Chris Phillips is around. And when Patrick Aleem is around, he's in there. And, you mm -hmm. know, when Mark Mathot is around working for TSN, yeah. you know, DJ show. Smith went up to him early on and said, man, like, not just when you're working, you're a former senator. In the dressing room, in the players' lounge, be around. You are, the door is open, be here. Like, it, that is encouraged now. And that's a huge thing. But with Alfie, it's different because it's Alfie. And... I don't know when the you know formal role is going to be defined. It has to be a combination of something he wants to do mm -hmm. and that job being a job. You know what I mean? Like you you have to have reasonable expectations. You know, when I see people saying, "Well, you know, um, Alfie Alfie for president." Well, Daniel's never been a scout or a player development guy or an assistant general manager or a player personnel guy. And you're just going to say, okay, you have to be president now because and you're you know. Alfie. That would be, that would be unfair to him and unfair to the job of being a president. You know, when you look back at guys who were star players, you know, Steve Eiserman apprenticed in Detroit for years, learning how to scout, learning how to be an assistant general manager, learning how to be a talent evaluator. And then by the time he got the job being the GM in Tampa, He'd already been in the business for a while, and his skills were skills that he earned, and not just from being wonder up wonderful hockey player that he earned from learning those jobs. So, knowing Alfie a little bit, I think Alfie doesn't want a job that he's not ready for because he's not a guy that enjoys failing. He does not like failing. I, so I yeah. think he's going to want a job that is meaningful, where his voice has some impact. But I think also, I'm sure, and we've ne I've never talked to him about this, but I'm sure. He doesn't want to be given a job that's simply a, a lofty title, but he doesn't have the experience or the understanding of how to do it because I don't think he wants that either. So I think the, I think the, the thing is going to be, he'll have a permanent stated role um, when he and Pierre Dorian or the new owner or whoever this is going to be discussed with uh, determines what the team needs and what he wants to do and merging those two things into something meaningful. But I think most importantly, just having him, back in the building on a regular basis and most importantly around players around especially the young players yeah. i can't stress enough how important it is for young players to see legacy icons around the building around in the locker room around players and again not just alfie 
you know, like all the other guys in town, the guys from the alumni who are around. It's it is important. It, it, it is important for for people to understand that if you're in it, you're in it for life in one way or another. And you may yeah. go on to play for other teams, but if you were a senator, you'll always be welcome in that room. And that is that is something that's a part of the culture that has really started to grow. And to be honest with you, you know, DJ Smith is a big reason why that is part of the culture. It's the same with the number of kids and family members that you see around the team and in the locker room, in the players lounge. He wants them there. His perspective is, you know, with a parent, for example, or in the case of Chikrin, a grandparent, you know, it's his family who, who got him here. So now you're going to be locked out. To, you got him here and now you can't go in there. You're, you're welcome in. And that kind of culture, you know, bring your kids. This is a family thing. You're, you spend enough time away from your kids. You shouldn't have to leave them at home because you're coming here. Bring them. Bring, they're welcome here. You know, they're going to be playing mini sticks in the back lounge with Brady. And they do because that's what they're doing back there. Yeah. You know, and and that is a that is a culture that has been cultivated by DJ Smith. Now, you might not like like his system or think that he can't coach this or should be or isn't a, whatever. But I can tell you um, that the culture that he created is one of the reasons why um, he has such a close bond with this group of players. You know, the vast the, you, you never have 100 percent that love you. But he, the love content amongst the players on this team for DJ Smith is very high. And one of the reasons is because of the culture that he's developed. Well, uh, before I let you go, the last question is just a little bit uh, quickly about Gord Wilson and, and your relationship with him. Just tell us a little bit about that and, and what makes you guys so, so special together in the booth. Well, first of all, we're not married. Um <laughs> Uh, number two, uh, we don't room on the road. We have our own rooms, never have room okay. together. What are some of the things that always, uh, people always ask? Um, yeah, no, it, 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 it's, it's kind of, it's kind of funny when, um, people often say things like, you know, I've been listening, uh, to you and Gord, um, you know, the entire time you guys been doing, love you guys, big fan. So how things going, Gord? Well, I know I'm, I'm Dean, you know, it, <laughs> we, we both get confused yeah. for each other all the time. And when you see us, um, <laughs> Yeah. We're in no way the same looking, you know, I'm uh, taller and heavier and he's shorter and lighter. And uh, I'm actually a year younger than him, even okay. though he looks younger than me. But for us, the relationship has always been good because um, I always say that uh, Gord has been my biggest safety net because uh, my biggest problem over my career has usually been me. Um, <laughs> when somebody's talking too much or saying too many dumb things or about to get in trouble, it's usually yeah. me. And so Gord is the one who usually yeah. pulls me back and saves us both from getting fired. I and lots of it. times when I'm thinking about something, I'll tell him first to see how he reacts. And if he has a reaction, like, what are you talking about? I know I should probably keep that one to myself. And, you know, <laughs> so, you know, Gord, uh, Gord has always been, uh, you know, my, my safety rails and he uh, pulls me out of uh, so many ditches all the time. And the other thing is that uh, after this long, we both understand each other and he gets my humor and I get his. We don't have to leave breadcrumbs to let the other no. person where we're going with a joke to get them to take part. He knows where I'm going. I know where he's going. And the other the other thing, the third thing is that uh, I have a great deal of respect for Gord. Outside of our friendship, Gord works unbelievably hard. Um, he is ready. There's no time when we're having a conversation where I turn to Gord and I wonder if I bring up this topic, will he have any prep to be able to have a good answer? Every time he does, because every time he's ready, every time he's prepared, you know, even though he didn't play at the professional level, I can't think of one radio color guy that's better than Gord. Gord knows the game. Gord knows this team better than anybody. Yeah. 
Nobody spends more time around this team than Gord does in any member of the media. There's no one that spends more time around this team than Gord. And like I said, the, the biggest thing is how hard he works, how diligent and professional he is. And that's why he is so good at what he does. And people think you say that because he's your partner and he's your friend. Part of that is yes. But the other part of it is because it's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Gord is, in my opinion, the best radio color guy in the NHL. And that includes guys who are former players. Because while they have may have that knowledge of being a former player, if you can't communicate it or that's the only thing you're depending on, you're not a well-rounded color guy. Yeah. And Gord's conversations with coaches, with players, with in- scouts, and Gord, Gord is, in my mind, the best radio color guy in the NHL, and I'm lucky to sit beside him every night. Well, you said that perfectly, and I uh, love listening to you guys as much as I can, especially after work or you know coming back from things. You guys are great, and uh, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to you guys uh, on the broadcast next year and hopefully for a long time to, to go. So thanks so much, Dean, for taking the time and, and doing this. I really appreciate it and uh, really uh, looking forward to, to the, the fall and, and hearing your voice as, as usual on, uh, on the broadcast. Well, Alex, uh, thanks, thanks for inviting me, and if I can ever help don't feel uh, feel free to reach out again no problem if you enjoyed this uh podcast with dean feel free to to subscribe like rate review we're available everywhere and uh, it helps support the podcast and our goal to 300 subscribers on uh, youtube and and everywhere else so please uh, feel free to subscribe and uh, follow and like and subscribe and i'll say it 55 times and just please do it thank you